America, my name is I'm Yose Frimpong, and you're coming, and I'm coming to you live every Friday as I do to try to try to deliver the quality of political knowledge that you might not have gotten in your K through 12 schooling or college or on your job. So I wanted to do a series of videos on the political machinery of democracy and how what it means to actually be self-determining through the institution of democracy. Now, to be clear, democracy is in general good, especially, most importantly, a constitutional democracy. Uh, the idea is that a constitutional democracy is going to save us from the appetites and um, desires of some monarch, right? So the nightmare scenario is you make a plan for your life and then... Some monarch wakes up one day, gets mad, and then takes all of your taxes and drafts your kids to go to war with Spain or something like that, right? So that's going to be the nightmare scenario. That's why constitutional um, republics are going to be superior to uh, monarchs just in general. Also why every Disney movie that doesn't end in a peasant rebellion of the monarch in favor of a constitutional democracy is 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 trash and i'll say that with authority because like don't give don't the idea that there's like some sort of good monarch over your life that's like uh the idea of a good slave master the problem is you're a slave doesn't matter how nice your slave master is they're nice they'll show power with you which means they won't be a slave master right um so we want to live in a world where the general rules of the world are set down by us as equals, right? So that's why all constitutional regimes are going to be better than um, monarchies or authoritarian regimes through a monarchy because you don't want you don't want the plans for your life to be to turn on someone else's appetites. It's like being in a very unstable relationship. You don't want the plans for your life to turn on someone else's appetites. Because, make no mistake, freedom is a matter of making and then realizing plans for your life. That means you need the world to be somewhat stable in order for you to make and realize plans for, the, uh, uh, for your life. Right? Good. Now, why is it good to have, like, a constitutional, I mean, a uh, republic or, or democracy rather than just, like, laws that are set down and can't be touched well we also want the laws to reflect us we want to have fair participation in creating the laws that then in turn um uh you know manage us right so we want yeah we want to interact with a world that is reflected on to us so we want the laws to reflect us and to do that we have like a series of little polities cities and then counties and then states and eventually nations the things that every citizen needs to be a citizen you can do at the national level and then like as local needs start emerging then you want local government to be able to have the wiggle room to fit to uh, to address them right so it's not um you can say well you know it's good to have laws but the constitution should stay the constitution and it shouldn't be fixed uh all right well okay so let's let's talk about constitutional 
constitutional governance again. I'm sorry. Let's talk about constitutional governance. It's good to have a constitution. The constitution needs to be rigid so that you can make plans under it. It's like playing in a soccer game and you don't want halfway through the game for like someone to decide, well, now people can use their hands. No, you train for this game where people can't use hands, right? So the constitution needs to be rigid so people can make under make rules under it and then realize themselves into it. It also needs to be appropriately fluid so that you can think through how the realization of freedom um, can uh, be moved through the rules, right? So you might have come up with inadequate rules. You don't want those frozen. I remember watching football games um, that were prior to the fair catch. And you would just see like people like looking up and then looking at the people at the careening towards them and then looking up. So like it wasn't actually an institution of freedom because without the fair catch, every time you looked up to catch the ball, like you took your life into your own hands. So um, I assume we're watching some old, old, old footage. So the fair catch is actually an institution of freedom. You want the game to be fluid enough to introduce something like the fair catch in football. Same with baseball and the designated hitter. You need, uh, you know, you can't have baseball set down and then all of a sudden someone thinks, you know what? We should have some sort of infield fly rule. But oh well. No, you want the, the, situ the, the governing body to be, uh, the governing institution to be to allow for changes, but the changes can't be too, um, but the governing body can't be too flimsy or it just becomes capricious rule that punishes people for uh, planning to live and live under the rules as is, right? So you don't want to punish people for planning their lives to live under the rules as is, but you also want to allow enough flexibility in rule formation so that they can change with either technology or the realization of freedom. We, we didn't know that black people were whole people, so we didn't build a constitution for them. Oh, we, no, let's be honest. We built a constitution with the understanding that they were slaves to, to, who needed to be defended against. Um, so... That's why you got like the Fugitive Slave Acts and casual killing laws. So that's for constitution. So, and also you don't want the rules to come from someone other than you. You want to live into your own rules. And that's why self-government comes from democratic participation in the constitution. Right? So there's this weird moment in the suffragette versus anti-suffragette uh, debate where they, the anti-suffragettes were pro-women rights, especially people like uh, Dodge or uh, Mildred Rutherford, they were pro-women's rights, but they wanted to be able to influence the passions of their elite husbands rather than have to go through a public process, <laughs> right? So um, they were pro self-rule, but anti-constitutional rule because they thought they would have a better chance, you know, um, playing on the sympathies of the men in their life rather than, they thought they, they were better reflected by paying, playing on the sympathies of the men in their life rather than advocating for laws that would govern the whole and then be accountable publicly to them, those laws, you know, and making arguments that way, right? So there's a kind of, you can separate constitutional rule from self-rule because if you think that, you know, you have more power and are better reflected by rules because um, of, like, your daddy is the rule maker, then 
then um, you can have self-rule without constitutional government, right? So the anti-suffragette movements are actually rather fascinating. Uh, Louise Newman wrote a good book on this called White Women's Rights about how, like, you know, a lot of feminism, the thing is the racist origin to feminism, white women's rights, Louise Newman. Uh, it was pretty much a book about how a lot of feminism, like, emerged as a kind of race politics where women were fighting for the right to co-rule with men over us. And then they plucked out the kind of women who would agree that black men were trash, like soldier in the truth, right? So they just kind of picked her. And, then, and, uh, and so you have to understand that both, and I'll just say one thing about that. You have to understand that both with uh, uh, patriarchal governance, conservative patriarchal governance, and feminist patriarchal governance, black people end up in jail or swinging from, swinging from trees, right? It doesn't really matter. And so that's why, you know, I get in trouble for not being the great feminist, but because I, I was a better feminist before I started reading feminists. <laughs> then I read enough feminists and I was like, oh, there's something, something wrong here. Um, and, and so I became a less feminist as I started reading more feminists. And, uh, and people think that, you know, black feminism or womanhood, fem womanism is going to fix you. It, it's not because the problem is womanhood and the way we've um, uh, incorporated womanhood and manhood, by the way, into our politics in a way that's just anti-black. Anti Both manhood and womanhood turns out to be anti-black. So you got to throw them all away. And with that, go ahead, let me hit the beat. To the beat, y'all. Change the ways for the world or the government If it was the president, then I would state facts You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black And it can feature in your front Now is a good time to remind you that now is a good time to remind you that If you want to support anything I'm doing Go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com And go ahead and give $5, $15, or $50 a month Because depending on who you talk to I'm making myself down white unemployable because the conservatives won't hire me and the feminists are kind of scared. Uh, they don't like me either. So like, I'm kind of like in that middle where I'm telling a lot of truth that doesn't immediately land on getting paid. So I need you to do your dil due diligence and go to www.funkyacademic.com and go ahead and kick down five, 15 or $50 a month. Even if you don't like everything I say, you got to appreciate that I'm the, the one Negro in your life who's saying it. And so five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month, they give me a one-time big donation. But I like the monthlies because that allows me to budget. And in these corona times, you know, there's so much instability. I, I, I like I like I like the donations. So um the machinery of a democracy is uh going to where you need to be reflected in the in the in the people that make the rules, right? We pick them, they reflect us. That means when we act out into the rules, we act out into something we, we recognize as, our, as ourselves. Like, that's, so we pick, we pick our um, representatives who are tasked with actually detailing the rules based on their vision for the whole that should reflect kind of our sensibilities about what freedom looks like, honestly. And... 
for that, we need to actually hear what our representatives think about what freedom looks like. That's this shouldn't be that complicated. However, we have a Congress that's elected every two years and congressional people who kind of treat the seat like it's their throne. And we have an electorate that's used to that, right? So, for example, let's take um, San Francisco. San Francisco, I mean, I could do, I mean, I could do some black leaders who really treat the job as, as if they own it. <laughs> it's not the people's job. But let's look at San Francisco, because that's like, you know, the biggest Democrat in, in Congress right now is Nancy Pelosi. And Pelosi's in a safety Democrat district. And she got that seat pretty much gifted to her in 87, because she was like the richest woman Democrat with free time around. Right. So she got it as a Democratic fundraiser who would have parties at her house to like because she she came from money. She came from political family, married into even more money and then um, like would just host fundraisers. And so she was a big Democratic fundraiser in San Francisco. And you do that for enough years, pretty soon you become a congressperson. <laughs> that's like that's that's the Nancy Pelosi. I don't think she's ever had a job. Which I don't know. You can say, well, you know, she had five kids. That's like a job. Yeah, but she had five kids as a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, which means that like she had nannies and help. So it's not like, let's stop pretending that she got that. Yeah, let's stop pretending that Nancy Pelosi having five kids is like you having five kids. It's not. Or like me having three. Like I homeschooled my kids this morning, went and taught class, and now I'm doing this on YouTube for a little bit of extra change. <laughs> like like that's, that's, that's not what Nancy Pelosi did, right? She had... Nannies, um, like lots of them, I suspect, strongly suspect. So, and, and the only reason I homeschool my kid is because of COVID. So like, yeah, I homeschool my kids in the morning and then teaching class in the afternoon and then reading and preparing for this in the, in the evening. That's, that's a different life than the Nancy Pelosi led until she got the job in 87 for pretty much being the richest woman everyone knew. Everyone who had money knew, right? So she got the job. And then for the last 30 years, that's not the worst way to get the job. People get the job for the reason to get the job. The problem is for the last 30 years, she has refused to debate any challengers. So what does that mean? Should she be term limited out? No, I'm not a fan of term limits just because lobbyists seem to stay. So if you term limit a lot of people out just because they've been there for a while, then the people who have been for, there for a while are lobbyists who get paid by private interests not on our side. So I'm not a fan of term limits. I want the voters to decide. I just want the voters to have substance in their decisions. And so what would it take for the voters to have substance in their decisions? I think candidates need subpoena power, right? If you challenge Nancy Pelosi and you're on the same ballot as she is, you should be able to subpoena her um, to show up for a debate. <laughs> the debate could be as simple as you ask her for a question for an hour and then it's what she asks you for a question for an hour and it needs to be a public setting and um voters need access public access to the answer to to the debate so we need a political media that would cover this debate because right now as it stands voters are at a disadvantage relative to the party right so it's not quite voter suppression because we're not keeping people from casting their ballots, but it is voter disadvantage insofar as the party decides who is on the ballot and they have their own interests, which are often financial, right? A lot of party officials don't care if you win or lose. They care if you bring in the money, 
right? So the idea that Nancy Pelosi can go through 30 years without, by denying challengers a fair debate, like disenfranchises the voters of having content. Because without a fair debate, without being able to differentiate between um, contestants, the voters themselves just become tools of the party. Right, the voters become the tools with which the party uses the vote. And the party has a different interest than the than the electorate. The party has a different in, like institutional interest in the electorate. In the same way that, um, yeah, you know, some guys belong to churches, and the, you know, the pastor kind of tweaks the sermon to uh, to kind of make the richest person in the congregation feel good because, you know, the congregation, the pastor needs a salary, the congregation needs a new roof or whatever. And, um, but at that point in time, when that happens, both the congregation, congregants, the congregation's interest as a whole, and depending on who you talk to, you know, the Lord and Savior's interests, um, are, have kind of been misaligned from the interests of the institution of that church, which is just about like sustaining itself. Right? So the institution of the Democratic Party in this case is going to be misaligned with the interests of the electorate. Right? You shouldn't be allowed to duck debates. And actually, it should be enforced. Part of this job is to show up when called at least three times, or probably at most three times, just make sure three times an election cycle to a public debate. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not fit to be a congressperson. Like Nancy Pelosi can't even handle hostile interviews. You saw her with Wolf Blitzer and, you know, she got incensed with the ideas that like Wolf Blitzer might not, might not, might know more about the pain in America than she does because she was elected by Americans. Yeah, but she was elected by Americans who didn't really have a choice, right? Like Saddam Hussein, I remember in, in what, 2004, maybe it was around there, he was elected. There was a ballot that had Saddam Hussein, yes or no? And I think he got like 99% of the vote. We haven't heard about the 1% yet. <laughs> um, uh, but that, like, it was a, it's a sham election because the electorate doesn't have content. Right? So you have to understand that democracy isn't natural. There's nothing natural about democracy. But there's also, it doesn't mean it's good, not good. There's nothing natural about electric washing machines. There's nothing natural about chemotherapy there's nothing natural about um you know glasses but i need them to be free i need them to see right so just because it's democracy might not be natural doesn't mean it's not good it's actually good because it might be rational might realize freedom like a lot of dentistry isn't rational i mean isn't natural but it's it's important um you know, so democracy is not natural. It's rational. That means it's constructed. So you have to think about the machinery that goes into and the care and the institutions that go into democracy. Because it's kind of like a bonsai tree, right? <laughs> a bonsai tree or a very fragile flower. You know, it's, it's not going to be a wildflower. It's, it's very fragile. So you have all of these institutional conditions for it to emerge that are not going to, like emerge naturally freely. They emerge through thought and reason. So we need to actually reason through what would it, it would take for the electorate not to be at a disadvantage relative to the party in our Congress, right? Because the class profile of Congress hasn't changed in 200 years. In the beginning, it was landed gentry and independent professionals. 
because those are the only people who counted in America. And now it's uh, Congress, the profile is landed gentry or old money and independent professionals, the kind of people who can just kind of close up shop for uh, a half a year and campaign. And when, or be professional politicians who have spent all of their time um, uh, sucking up to all of the wrong people, right? So if we want a democracy that actually reflects the demos, we need to talk about the machinery of democracy. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about what it takes for candidates to be candidates and the barriers um, that candidates expose. But right now, I'm going to talk about Congress and our need to be able to hold politicians accountable. We can't expect the media to do it because access journalism, right? So Wolf Blitzer might not get another interview with Nancy Pelosi because he gave her a hard time last time. And he didn't even give her a hard time. He was just doing his job. He was just doing a hard time. Like he was just doing um, his job that by suggesting that she might not be doing all of hers. Like that's a fair suggestion considering that the last relief act was months ago and America like is working at a fraction of the capacity because COVID shut down the economy. So we need our Congress to do what it does and smooth out these rough edges of the COVID economy so that people don't get punished for making plans for their life. Right. But uh, who knows if Wolf to gets another interview like that. Pelosi doesn't take hard interviews. She, it's her throne. And I have a problem with the Congress. Since we're talking about congressional seats, I'm going to talk about John Lewis's seat. It was gifted to a woman named Nikita Milli- Nikima Williams and I, in a way that I don't like. She was the chair of the uh, Georgia State Party and the Georgia State Party was tasked with finding the replacement. And she like looked in the mirror and said, I would make a wonderful congressperson and picked herself. Um, apparently Dick Cheney did the same thing for a VP. Uh, uh, for Bush, he was, he was tasked with being part of the VP search committee. And he was like, I'd make a wonderful one. Uh, but Nakima Williams, but with that seat, as it's installed, that's going to suffocate out anybody else who would challenge her. Right. And, and I have a problem with that. So there's not going to be, if it's, it's a legacy seat in a safety district. Um, and she just gave herself a 30 year job. Right. So we need to talk about the machine of democracy that so that nobody that there are, no incumbent is safe. It might be the case that party is safe, a party is safe based on the ideology of the people on the street, but that no incumbent is safe. No incumbent should be safe. That that's that's the tweet. That's the whole thing. No incumbents should be safe, even if you have safe party seats, relatively safe party seats based on the ideology and the vision of the people and the culture of the the town. No incumbent should be safe. And no incumbent should be treated as if they were safe. That's bad for democracy. Because that is when the party uses the people as a means to support itself, as opposed to the people using a party as a means to reflect itself. Right? I hope, uh, I hope this has been clear. If you support anything I do, you know what to do. And I did a segment on rising. Rising's a show with um, uh, Crystal Ball and, and Saga and Jetty that's on the internet. And I, you know, I appreciate when they have me on. Now, when I, it's funny because the next time if they have me on again, I'm going to straight up say like, thank you for coming on to my show because I feel like every time I go on there, I have to act as if it's the only time 
Um, I'm going to go on the show just because at some point in time, I'm going to take off the wrong white lady and you know how that goes. So I, I just act. Um, so like I, I get it all out. This time was a little bit unfortunate because uh, I know it was on their end because it was coming great. It was, the, the picture was coming great out of my screen. They had a green tint over me. So I don't know about what was going on with that. But uh, go on to Rising. Just click risingorhill.com. And uh, I talked about the importance of divisiveness and how it is through divisions that you get content. I also did a video on that on this show on this, on, on the Funky Academic YouTube show. But uh, I like going on Rising. It's fun. I think, uh, I think Crystal is, she invites me on and I have, she doesn't have to. And I know she gets a lot of flack for it, but uh, she's a class act. What are you going to do? Class acts do what class acts do. So I uh, thank you for Crystal for having me on. And uh if I ever go on again, you better believe, once again, I will act as if it's the last time I'm going to be there ever and get it all out. <laughs> oh, they say, act like you've been there before. I don't think that's going to work for black people. I think black people need to act like they're never coming back. And that, and with that, I'll leave you. If you appreciate the work I do every week and you think that I should continue to do it because I'm giving you the quality of political knowledge and insight that will help you not squander your life and kind of rescue meaning from it, then go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in $5, $15, or $50 a month or make one enormous donations. I like the monthlies because it allows me to budget more and that'll help me, you know, with a marketing budget or getting better equipment that works all the time because a lot of, in a lot of ways, freedom means having equipment that works every time you turn it on. <laughs> and I want to be a free Negro. So, um, if you like what I do, go to funkyacademic.com and contribute. Thanks often comes in the form of cash and the site takes credit cards.